All right, well, there I am. Okay, so thanks for getting that worked out, Aaron, in spite of my, like, mean-spirited announcement. So, um, you know, if you're just joining us this morning, my name is Steve, and um, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and I hope you know that, like, my teasing of Aaron is simply that. Like, it's teasing. It's my love language. Um, uh, I really did give permission to do that. (laughs) But, um, you know, if you're just joining us, we've been studying in the book of First Samuel. I still feel really loud. Am I? Uh, I, mean, I, I feel like I feel really, really loud. And I'm not, even get, I'm not even going yet. So there we go. Is that better? All right. Thank you. Um, if you're just studying us, we're in the book of First Samuel, and we're nearing the end of the book. And over the last several chapters, if you haven't been here for our study, We've been seeing this, we've been seeing Saul, who was Israel's first king, on this downward spiral where, like, motivated out of his jealousy for David, out of the bad counsel he was getting from his advisors, out of, like, his own paranoia and his disobedience to the Lord and God's disfavor upon him. I mean, there was just chapters and chapters of this. Like, Saul's been on this downward spiral that resulted in him, like, hitting rock bottom in the text that we looked at last week, where, last week, where instead of responding to God's like silence to him and repentance and turning to the Lord, he actually turned to a necromancer to, to conjure up Samuel from the dead and get, like, and get input on how the battle the next day was going to fare with the Philistines. Saul received bad news that the battle was not going to fare well and that the next day he would die. And so we've seen Saul kind of hit rock bottom, this, this king that the nation of Israel chose for themselves so that they could have a king like the nations, was acting just like a king from the nations and walking in disobedience to the Lord and was not going to give them what like God had promised them. They were going to be actually taken captive by the Philistines. You know, and then we've seen kind of on a parallel track, we've seen like David on this downwards trajectory himself. Like, uh, and if you're just joining us, I should have said this earlier, um, open your Bibles to, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 29 this morning, but before we do, go to 27, because in chapter 27 is where we will see kind of David's downward spiral begin. You know, in, in verse 1 of chapter 27, right after this high point at the end of verse 26, it says, David says this, Then David said to himself, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. What we saw a couple weeks ago when we looked at that is that David lost hope. He lost it. He took his eyes off the Lord. He lost his confidence in God's promises to him. It it gave him this like hopelessness and cynicism about his life to the point where he's like, the best thing I've got going is whatever the Philistines have to offer me. So he deserted the nation of Israel. And like joined the nation of the Philistines, who were um, who were Israel's arch enemies. You know, in verse four of chapter twenty-seven, it seems like it worked. It seems like it worked because part of what was you know what was motivated David was this constant threat on him from King Saul. Verse four of chapter twenty-seven. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. So like there was a certain pragmatic success to what David did. Like Saul broke off the manhunt for David because now he was in another country. If you look down at verse six, um, uh, in verse five, like David asks King Achish if he could have a city um, for his he and his men, which wasn't an uncommon thing in those days for kings to grant to like 
like people. And so in verse 6, it says, So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. So Saul broke off the manhunt. David and his men and their families had their own city to live in with four walls to protect them. So they, they, it seemed to be working again. He, he was living in security and in safety. But then what we see down in verses 10 and 11, it came with a cost. Because uh, David would go out and raid. And it, says, um, and it says, now Achish said in verse 10, Where have you made a raid today? And David said, against the Negev of Judah, and against the Negev of the Jeremielites, and against the Negev of the Kenites. And David did not leave man or woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, Lest they should tell about us saying, so David has done, and so has, has been his practice all the time he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has surely made himself odious among his people Israel. Therefore, he will become my servant forever. What David was doing in order to dispel Achish's, like any, any potential suspicions Achish might have about his loyalty is he was, he was raiding like enemies of Israel and enemies of the Philistines, but he was lying to King Achish about it and telling him that he was actually attacking his own people in Judah. And so Achish comes to the conclusion like, oh, if he's attacking his own people, he will become odious to them and he'll be loyal to me forever. And so what we see in verse... Um, in, in chapter 28, verse 1. Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So what we have in this story is that David deserts the nation of Israel. He... he he appeals to the favor of King Achish to, Achish to give him like safety and security. And it even gets to the point where, like, where Achish like, then commands him to go out into battle against the nation of Israel with them. And David agrees to do it. We saw this last week. And then that story just changes, the scene just changes to the whole scene where Saul then is overlooking the army of the Philistines. And he's terrified. And that's what drives him to go to the necromancer. We saw that, that's in verse 3 of chapter 28. So what you have is like the author of, of 1 Samuel just leaving us with this tension. David's been on this downward spiral, and now he's in the treacherous position of joining the enemies of Israel to fight against, like, his own people. So it, it leaves us with all these questions. Like, is David really going to do that? Is he really this, this one that God has chosen to be his king? Has he really fallen so far that he's going to go attack the nation of Israel? Maybe Is this the time that he's finally going to take matters into his own hands and kill King Saul and, and take the throne? But how can he do that? Like, there's question after question after question because it would be like somebody from the Ukraine defecting to the Russians and then joining the Russians in an attack back on Ukraine. Like, like what? Like, it's... It, it just left us hanging with all these questions. And what we're going to see today is that, is that in, verse, in chapter 27, it's, it's a short, just 12-verse chapter. Nothing extravagant happens in it. Like, there's no, like, necromancer raising anybody from the dead. There's no, like, parting of the Red Sea. There's no, like, meteors from heaven. There's no, like, right? Like, just normal stuff happens in chapter 27. Chapter 
kind of a weird amen. <laughs> Everybody's it together, you know. Twenty-nine. <laughs> yeah, twenty-nine. Sorry. And it's eleven verses. When I said twelve, I was looking at chapter twenty-seven, and uh, and in my head, I was like, I thought it was eleven verses. Chapter twenty-nine. I'm glad one of us knows what's going on here. So this morning. But it's, an imp- it's important to see that what, ha- what transpires here to resolve all the tension that we've been left with in this story, um, it's important for us to realize like, that God works most of the time through the normal, everyday happenings of this world. And, and like, it's unusual how it operates in these extravagant sort of ways that sometimes we, we kind of ex- come to expect in the Bible, that maybe just through Achish re- receiving some counsel from his men and acting in, acting in accordance with it, like maybe God's plans are going to move forward through something as simple as that. And it's important for us to realize this because it's easy for us. Like if, I don't know if anybody was, you know, like we just had our midterm elections last week. And, and if you're at all, like, listening to the media, like, I'm surprised that we're here. <laughs> because, like, on both sides of the political divide, like, this is the last chance to save, like, America, right? America is going to come to an end. Like, our fate as a nation hangs in the balance and, like, it could all come crashing down on us on Wednesday if things don't go our way. You know, and if our hearts at all reflect what's being spun all around us, like, a lot of you probably feel, like, somewhat anxious, somewhat, like, uncertain, like, somewhat maybe, like, depending on, you know, I don't think any side, like, really came out as, like, clear winners, right? Like, there's probably like some anxiety and worry and whatever it might be in your hearts. If your hearts at all are impacted by what's being spoken all around us, you're probably in this place of insecurity like, oh, what in the world is going to happen? Is the world going to come to an end? You know, the, the, what we'll see in this text through just God's unseen hand working the circumstances out is that God is never anxious about the affairs of men, and that there is, there is no scheme of man and there is no failure of his servants that can keep God's plan from moving forward, even through just normal, everyday things. In fact, like in, in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 46, like God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and in Isaiah 46, he, he's talking about those who make gods, like idols, that just fashion them with their hands, and, and he's, he's kind of mocking them for the ineffectiveness of their idols, and he's mocking the nation of Israel for the ineffectiveness of their idols, that they worship a God who doesn't really do much. And then he says this in Isaiah 46, I think it starts in verse 8. He says, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. These ones who make these gods who don't do anything, to, who have no power and no effectiveness, he calls them transgressors. He says, and remember. Remember the things that God's done from long ago. And listen what he says. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Do you hear that? 
He declares from ancient times things that haven't been done. He declares the end from the beginning. He goes on saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Like God does not sound at all insecure here. Right? In fact, when he talks about calling a bird of prey from the east, he's talking about the Assyrian armies and how he's going to bring the Assyrian armies down on the nation of Israel in judgment. And the king of Assyria, who is like the king of the greatest superpower of the day, is just like God's bird of prey that he sends out, like hunting, like a falconer. Like, God is not insecure about the outcomes of any election, he's not insecure about the fate of any nation. He's the one that controls all things and declares the end from the beginning. And there is nothing that can interrupt his like, purposes of like, redemption and rescue and restoration and, and bringing this world back to, to where it should be um, in his like, servant, Jesus Christ. And we're just going to see that happen in some really normal ways um, this morning. So why don't you stand with me? I'm going to read um, verses 1 through 5, I think it is, if I'm in the right chapter. And uh, then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it together. It says this. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, while the Israels were camping by the spring, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were, were proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were proceeding on in the rear with Achish. Then the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to, to the and Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or rather these years? And I have found no fault in him from the day that he deserted to me to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Make the man go back, that he may return to his place where you have been where you have assigned him, and do not let him go down to the battle with us, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For with what could this man make himself acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men? Is this not David, of whom they sang in the, sing in the dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your grace and your mercy and your sovereignty in this world that no one can, can thwart your plan and that you declare the end from the beginning and you, do, you accomplish your purposes and you do that individually for us and you do it like nationally and for us as a church. And so I just pray that you would help us to like just recognize um, your greatness and be able to rest in your sovereignty um, this morning. Just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in verse 1, you know, we kind of went through this whole drama of how, like, David got himself into this really, really difficult situation. And interestingly enough, like, um, the story we saw uh, last week where Saul went into the necromancer um, happens chronologically after this story. Because chapter 29, verse 1 says, Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek while the Israelites were camping by the string which is in Jezreel. 
Like, you have to understand the geography in order to understand what's going on here. But, like, uh, Gath, which is where Achish was king of, the city of Gath, and then the, the Philistine cities all around him, like, were mustering their armies. And they were mustering their armies in, this, in this, the, the region of, what was it called? Um, Aphek, Achish, Aphek, all sounds the same. Like, they were, they were mustering their armies in Aphek, which is about halfway between um, Gath, where Achish is from, and where in the Jezreel Valley, where Saul was like with his armies, where we saw them like camping on the opposite sides of the of the Jezreel Valley, facing each other off last week. So, what, what, what if, if this was like a TV series, or I mean, people don't watch TV anymore? I found that out. Um, a streaming show. <laughs> when the, this chapter, verse one, would say, you know, three days earlier. Okay, so we're jumping back in time now, and the and we're jumping back in time to when the armies of Philistia are marching towards like the battle with the Philistines. I mean, to, with the Israelites and David, and, and, and we're presented with this scene where all of the ranks and all the companies of the, of the Philistines are, are marching like in front of their commanders. There's this, there's this like surveying of the troops as, as these organized and, and like, like opposing like military units go walking by. And because David and his men were Achish's like bodyguards, they were taking up the rear with Achish. And so as the commanders are looking on, they see all of their armies, and then they see this whole band of 600, like, Hebrew people. And they're like, what? Like, because we're going to go attack the land of the Hebrews. Why are they, like, in our ranks? Kind of a normal response, right? Like, it seems like an unusual thing to them. And, and so, what they, so they ask that question to King Achish. And then in verse in verse 3, we have, we have Achish kind of make a blunder here because apparently, like, the Philistines just recognized them as Hebrews but didn't really know, like, wh- who they were. It was just this company of Hebrews. And then Achish says, oh, these aren't just any Hebrews. Is this not David, the servant of Saul? Which, you know, maybe Achish is, like, highlighting the fact that he was the servant of Saul. Maybe there's some ego thing going on there. I don't know. Is this not David, the servant of Saul, who has, who has, like, I've never found any fault in him from the day that he deserted until now? This is David, the deserter that used to serve King Saul, and now he's part of our army, and we're going to go attack Saul. Achish thinks this is a great idea. You know, I mean, let me just make one side comment here. I'm going to have a couple of these side comments throughout here. These aren't the main kind of point of the text, but I think it's, they're worth mentioning. David's acceptance of, of Achish was based on the fact that he was a deserter. Like, prior to David deserting to Achish, David was public enemy number one as far as the Philistines were concerned. He was the one that killed Goliath. Philistine. He was the one that, that led the charge as they slaughtered like Philistines all the way back to the home, like Achish's hometown of Gath. But then once David deserted, he became acceptable to King Achish. I think it's really important for us to understand this because, because um, David's desertion wasn't like complete. It wasn't total, but it was genuine and real. 
David's desertion like didn't bring him to the point where you know we saw in the previous chapter that he 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 never did attack the land of the people of Judah. He only attacked their enemies. So it wasn't a complete desertion, but it was a real desertion. And David's like like in this place where he's trying to play both sides. He's trying to be a good, loyal Israelite by, by not uh, attacking the land of Judah and only attacking their enemies. But then he's trying to play Achish, too, by lying to him and telling him what he's doing. And he's caught in this place in the middle because he's a deserter. And I think oftentimes we can do the same thing. We can think, oh, like, my desertion from the Lord isn't complete. I'll still try to, like, affirm, like, everything that God's doing in his people and... And yet I'm going to like try to play both sides of that. I want like, I want to have all of what this world has to, world has to offer me and have Jesus too. And I want to like play in this middle ground in the middle instead of complete devotion. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like the scriptures are filled with warnings again and again and again and again that trying to play that middle ground is, is an impossibility. In fact, in James... James chapter 4, starting at verse 5, James is talking to the church, and he says this, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, who wish, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world make, makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us. What he's saying is like, man, God's placed, if you're a Christian, God's placed his spirit within you. He jealously desires that, like desires you. And yet, like when you try to make yourself a friend of the world, and, and he's not talking about don't, be, don't have friends that aren't Christians. What he's saying is like, don't try to think that you can like live in the world's system, embrace the world's values, like follow the world's ideals and do all those things and not make yourself an enemy with God. David deserted, he was playing the middle ground, and in a very real sense, he's marching with the armies of the Philistines to go attack the people of God. Friendship with the world is hostility to, towards God, his, his safety, his security, and his acceptance that he got from the Philistines had put him in this terrible situation. But as you can imagine, the commanders of the Philistines, once they find out it's David, they, they, uh, they don't like the idea, verse 4. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Make the man go back that he may return to his place where you have assigned him. And do not let him go down to battle with us, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For with what could this man make himself acceptable to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men? You know, it's interesting. So they have a perfectly reasonable explanation of why David's there. Maybe they say, David is in our ranks and pretending to be loyal to you because when we go to attack, they're going to be behind our positions. And in the middle of the battle, they're going to turn on us because... If David showed up to King Saul with like a wheelbarrow full of Philistine heads and the heads of all the leaders of the Philistines and like dumped them at Saul's feet, maybe that would patch things up between him and Saul. We're not going to battle with this guy. He can't be trusted because you never know in the heat of the moment if his loyalties will return and if he's just doing this to win Saul's favor. And then they get sarcastic back to 
Uh, I think there's sarcasm here. They get sarcastic back to uh, Achish because Achish said, is this not David? Remember? And then they say the same thing. Is this not David? Because they're angry at him. Of whom they sing in their dances. Like apparently David has his own dance now. Um, he used to just have his own song, but now it's like, you know, all the teens in, in Israel are posting the David dance on TikTok, right? Is this not David of whom they sing in the dances saying Saul has slayed his thousands, but David is ten thousands? Like you forget, hey, kids, who this guy really is. He's the one that they still sing about, that they still dance about, and that they still sing that he's killed his ten thousands of Philistines. Make him go back. It's completely sensible counsel to King Achish. It makes complete sense, you know, and we'll see how Achish responds in a minute. But I want to make one more kind of side comment before we do. It's interesting what the Philistine commanders say about David. You know, David, David had received the city from Achish. And look what it says in verse 4. Make this man go back that he may return to his place where you have assigned him. The Philistines were okay with David and his men as long as they stayed in the place where they were assigned. As long as they stayed like in their nice little like city of Ziklag between their four walls and weren't really messing with any of the Philistine situation, they're okay with David and his men living there among them as long as he just keeps in the place where he's been assigned. You know, as I read that, I just couldn't help but think about kind of like our, that the Philistine lords there kind of reflect the same sort of spirit of tolerance that exists in our culture today. Like this, like in America today or in Oregon in particular, I think like as long as like you're tolerant of everybody and everything, like you're good to go. And I think even as Christians, we're recipients of that tolerance. But kind of my experience is as long as we stay in the place that we've been assigned. Right? And David could do that. He could just go back to Ziklag, have a party, not worry about like the battle going on. And he could just stay in the four walls of his city. The problem is, as God's people, it's not what we're called to. We're called to something completely different. You know, we're called to, like, impact this, this like, our nation, our neighborhoods, our neighbors, like, with the truth of the gospel. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not talking about the, I guess I'll just say it, like, the infatuation that the American church seems to have on like politics and power as if politics and power are going to be the way that we're going to bring in the kingdom of God. Not talking about that. That's what David did when he got his own city by scheming and doing everything else. And he did, he was playing the political game and he did get his city. But I'm talking about what the, what the scriptures talk to us about over and over again, like in Philippians chapter two, listen to what Paul says to the church. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. I mean, like, let me just break that down for a second. He says, you should be blameless and innocent as children of God, like as God's people, our first and primary and most like fierce loyalty and identity isn't around our politics, it's around the fact that we're children of God. 
And our biggest concern should be that we, that we live like blameless and innocent in our unique identity as his people with the same like grace and compassion and love and mercy and, and like goodness and kindness that the Lord shows. He goes on. In, in, he says in verse 16, I think it's maybe the next slide. Yeah, holding fast the word of life. So then the day of, that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. He's like, as a church, we need to be those that hold fast to the truth of the gospel. We, that has to be like our, our constitution that defines us. And it, it, that's individually, that's corporately with us as a church. So that, back a slide, right? That we can live above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom we shine as lights in this world. That word light there is an interesting word. It's, it's, a, it's where we get this, the idea of luminaries from. It's the idea of like a constellation together corporately. We shine as lights in this world. Philistines were okay with David as long as, like, he just stayed in Ziklag. And yet, Jesus says this at the church in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. We're those people who are supposed to, like, be shining out the, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, like, both in how we live, how we interact with each other, like, our nature, our, our our unique identity as the people of God in this world. If we really care about our nation, like, let's do that. So that's what God does to, like, transform, like, societies, is when the word of life is held fast to and, and God's light shines in the darkness. All right, verse 6. It's kind of our second thing. This is Achish's conversation then with David. Achish releases David and. In verse 6, he says this, Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been upright, and your going out and your coming in with me in the army are pleasing in my sight, for I have not found evil in you from this day, from the day of your coming to this day. Nevertheless, you are not pleasing in the sight of my Lord. So let me just stop there. Because the way that Achish starts off his speech with David is really, really interesting. Then Achish called David and said, As the Lord lives. And he actually invokes like God's covenant name for Israel, the, the, the personal name that God had given the nation of Israel. And Achish the Philistines calls like God, the living God, the God of Israel to be his witness in what he says to David. Well, the reason why that's interesting is Achish, he's the only guy that invokes God's name in this entire thing. He's the only one that appeals to God. And it's the only time God shows up in this story is when the God, this Philistine, like, swears by him. But the other interesting thing about it is that, is that it's the exact same words that Saul used when he was swearing to the necromancer in the chapter before, when the necromancer says, oh, I can't conjure up uh, Samuel from the dead because King Saul had made it illegal, not knowing she was talking to King Saul. And Saul said, as the Lord lives, you won't uh, suffer any like consequences from this. And so at that moment when Saul was confronted with his hypocrisy of like, of like following the law of God and recognizing that the law of God prohibited necromancy in the land, 
When, when Saul was confronted with his neck, with his, with, he was confronted with his hypocrisy because uh, he, he used that same expression as the Lord lives. Well, here David is exposed with his hypocrisy because look what, look what uh, Achish says to him. You have been upright and you're going and you're coming in with me and the army are pleasing in my sight for I have not found evil in you from the day you've come here until this day. What did we read at the end of chapter, whatever chapter I was stuck on, 27? David was consistently lying and deceiving Achish. So Achish's first words like kind of evoke in us like David being confronted with his own hypocrisy because Achish thinks he's a swell guy. And he's been lied to the whole time. But you know what, David? You're not pleasing the sight of the Lord's verse 7. Now therefore return and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? And what have you found in your servant from the day that I came before you to this day that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? It's a really interesting response. Like, if I was David, I'd be like, sweet, peace. Like, I'm back, right? Because he's in this situation where he doesn't want to be in. And yet, it, it looks like he's, he's, like, wanting to go into battle with the Philistines. You know, and there's a lot of, like, speculation about why. Like, why is he, like, pushing back against Achish's thing? And some people think, like, he was going to do exactly what the Philistines, like, suspected that he was going to do. He was going to turn on them in the battle and, and actually attack the Philistines as a way to try to, like, smooth things over with Saul. Some people think that David just didn't want to appear too eager lest he tip his hand of his disloyalty. We don't really know. But I think one thing we can know because David doesn't actually ask to go into the battle. His questions, he has two different questions. What have I done and what have you found in your servant? His questions all revolve around, oh, like what have you figured out, Akish? What have I done that makes you not want me to go into battle with you? You know, I think David's like finally worried that maybe as he's been trying to play Achish, Achish has been playing him and he's brought him out here with all of his men away from their city um, with the entire armies of Israel to expose like what he's done and maybe his time is up. What have I done and what have you found? I really want to know like what's motivating this because my conscience is bothering me. You know, what you, what you see is that David exchanged, like, one source of insecurity, King Saul, from which God promised to protect him, for another source of insecurity, his, like, duplicity, trying to play both sides of the fence with Achish and, the, and like, his loyalty to the Lord, um, from which God never promised to protect him. And now he's in this situation, surrounded by the armies of the Philistines, just with him and his men, and he wonders what Achish has found. It's a terrible place to be. You know, in fact, 
You know, David, I think over the course of his life, probably through circumstances like this, learned that like he doesn't want to be there. In fact, in, like this is all over in the Psalms, but here's just one sample. Psalm 141, 8 and 9. He says this, For my eyes are towards you, O God the Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not leave me defenseless. Keep me from the jaws of the trap which they have set for me and from the snares of those who do iniquity. You know, at that point in his life, David was able to say, like, man, Lord, I look to you, so don't leave me defenseless. Rescue me from this trap that people are laying for me. But at this point in his life, he's been spiraling downwards in disobedience to the Lord. He hasn't even mentioned the Lord in any of his, like, previous, like, the, this chapter and the chapter before. And he just keeps his downward spiral. And now he's left here, potentially exposed. Verse 9, but Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are pleasing in my sight like an angel of God. (laughs) Seems weird. Um, Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he must not go up with us to the battle. Now then arise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who have come with you. And as soon as you have arisen early in the morning and have light, depart. So David arose early, he and his men, to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Pretty simple response, like Achish, Achish keeps doubling down on his like affection for David. Oh, you haven't done anything, David. You're like an angel of God. Never have you like done anything against me. It's just the Philistine lords don't trust you, so just head on back. And so David does. He heads back. Now, this is what brings us to the seems like relatively unspectacular. Like, all right, let's end on that. But what we're seeing here is something, God's doing something really significant here. For one, he's rescuing David from his own stupidity. And in fact, David hasn't returned to the Lord yet. David hasn't hit rock bottom yet. David's going to do that in the next chapter. I think it's in chapter 6. I mean, verse 6. In the next chapter, David hits rock bottom. And then finally, David like turns to the Lord. And then the Lord begins speaking to David and things turn. But it hasn't happened yet. But David rescues I mean, God rescues David from his own stupidity and his own unfaith and his own hopelessness and his own cynicism completely apart from David having to do anything. You just see God's grace and his mercy and his compassion upon David. But it's it's even more than that. He didn't just rescue David. God was advancing his redemptive plan. God had declared that David would sit on the throne. God had declared that he would put him in there. God had declared that the next day he was going to kill King Saul. Like, God was doing all sorts of things to protect David here. Like, like David went back to the land of the Philistines. They're all going the wrong direction. And the Philistines went to Israel. And and on the day of the battle, when Saul wakes up after the necromancer incident, like, God is going to, like, bring judgment upon Saul and upon his house. And Saul and his sons are going to die. And David's going to be miles away during it all. He's protecting David's reputation as not having to go up against battle to the Lord. He might be protecting David's life because after the Philistines kill King Saul, like the next thing that probably wouldn't want they'd want to do is kill the heir apparent to the throne. David's walking in, still walking in disobedience here, and yet God shows mercy to him. But he shows he shows mercy to his redemptive plan because it's. It's in David that he promised to, like, bring a descendant who would one day sit on the throne. Like, 
the, the invisible hand of God for rescue and redemption cannot be thwarted by the schemes of men or by the failure of his servants. You know, the early church, um, well, I mean, again, that's all through the scriptures too. Like what you see, one of the things you see happening here is God's doing all that is in, in Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21 says this, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Like you're at the beach and you're making a little like, you know, sandcastle thing and a little channel of water going through and you're just like, mm, 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 and you make it go the other way, right? Kings of the nations, like God can just do that with their heart and direct the kings wherever he wants them to go. That's what he did with Achish. He just causes his, with this normal counsel coming to Achish, he makes a normal rational decision and God saves David through it all. King Nebuchadnezzar, during his day, he was the, uh, he was the king of the Babylonians. He reigned uh, in Babylon, and, and he was the greatest king of the greatest superpower of the day. And this is what King Nebuchadnezzar says in, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. He's speaking, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in the earth, may your peace abound. He's making this decree. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and the wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. King Nebuchadnezzar makes this decree about the God that we worship, that he is. He has this everlasting kingdom for all generations. And then what he does is he goes in and tells his testimony of how he exalted himself up and acted as if he was the one that that made Babylon great and how God struck him with madness and how he lived as a crazy person like a cow out in the wilderness for, um, I think it was seven years, like uh, for years. And says his fingernails grew long like eagle's talons and his, I forget, his hair. And he was a crazy man. And then he says this in Daniel chapter 4. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Did you hear that? The king of the greatest superpower of the day says, like, he does what he wants to do. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Like, God is not the least bit worried about the schemes of men. At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished and my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added, added to me. Now listen to this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And God is not the least bit worried 
He is able to humble those who walk in pride. And David's pride, where he was seeking to like, bring security and safety and, and all of those things upon himself that was completely unraveling around him, guess what? God was, God was humbling David too. God was bringing David low so that he could lift him up again. You know, the story doesn't end there. You know, in Acts chapter 4, a thousand years later, the church was gathered together much like we were, we are. And Peter and John, the apostles, had just been threatened by the religious leaders of the day that if they continued to preach the message of Jesus Christ, that they were going to be, like, probably killed, that they were going to be, like, dealt with. And when the church, when the church uh, came back together, they began praying, and this is one of the things they prayed in verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Do you guys hear that? It's an amazing statement. Herod the fake king of Israel who was just there based on Roman appointment who like condemned Jesus to death. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who represented the great superpower of the day, um, who also sentenced Jesus to death or at least turned him over to be sentenced to death. The people of Israel who all cried out like, away with him, we want Barabbas, crucify him. What did they do? They did whatever God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur. God was not taken off guard. His plan, he declared the end from the beginning. His plan is always moving forward. What was the thing that he predestined to occur? Listen to what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now listen. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. What is God's predestined purpose it will not be thwarted. It is his purpose for rescue and redemption and the overthrow of our greatest enemies, including death itself. It is impossible for him to be held in its power. So if, if you're like David in this middle of this place where it feels like everything's kind of coming unraveled around you, you know, the, the best thing you can do is just return to the Lord. David doesn't do it. Like I said, he's not going to do it till next week's text, but the best thing you can do is turn to the Lord because he's a God who rescues and who redeems and who like overthrows like the enemy, our ultimate enemies. And nothing can toward his plan. No election outcome, no like superpower, no like threat. Like God is advancing his plan of rescue and redemption and he invites us to be part of it. So Yehuda, why don't you come, why don't you come up so you can quote us? You know, and if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, I just want to say like what, what Peter says here, that God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. 
Like our ultimate, like our ultimate threat for every single one of us here is death itself. And Jesus put an end to the agony of death for everyone who places their faith in him. Because it's impossible for him to be held in his power. And if we are found in him, like we won't be held in its power either. Death will have no sting. I just want to challenge you. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as the one who is, going to, is, is fulfilling all of God's promises to us, the one who has paid the cost of our redemption, the one who died in our place according to God's predetermined plan, I just, I just want to challenge you to like confess your sins to him, give your life to him, and begin following him. The church, the church in Acts 2 appealed to scriptures that were written a thousand years before to interpret their present situation. And we can do the same thing. We can, we can rest in the reality that God is still in charge and God is moving his plan forward. We don't have to be so anxious and so upset and so frustrated all the time. We can just rest in him. So you could have wanted to close it. You know, we just sang this. And I praise the God of grace. I trust his truth and might. He calls me his, I call him mine, my God, my joy, my light. My Lord has saved my life and freely pardon gives. I love because he first loved me. I live because he lives. You know, I just, let me just, let's just pray to that end, that, that we live as people who, like, trust his truth and his might, who live as those who have been called by him and who... Um, forgive because of the free pardon that we received, who love because of the love we received from him. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for like the, the fact that your plan for this world is never in doubt and, and that you're never worried about it and you're, you're always carrying it forward and that one day it'll come to its fruition and with the return of Jesus Christ and where you do away with everything that, that troubles us. So I just pray in the meantime that you would help us to be those who, who trust your truth and who trust your might, who, who love because you first loved us, who, who pardon because you pardoned us, and that we would shine as lights in this world. Just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.